to Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Some of us find our path early on in life, whether due to adversity, chance, or some fire in the soul. For me, food activism was my entry point into all I do now as a midwife, herbalist, and MD, as well as how I raise my kids and live my life day to day. It was learning the connections between agribusiness, the military-industrial complex, and pharma to food disparities around the world, poverty, and disease that led me on my path. And food activists like my old friend who was the co-founder of Food Not Bombs, Frances Moore LePay and her book, Diet for a Small Planet, and Susan George's book, how the other half dies that started me on a path that took me to the first organic farm in Vermont, where I eventually got together with my husband to the Lakota reservation in South Dakota, where tribe members were taking back their land from white ranchers and growing the food that was almost impossible to get on the reservation and reclaiming food sovereignty. It's what brought me to herbal medicine and midwifery as ways to reclaim traditional practices that are gentler on the earth, free us from depending on agra and pharma and put the power back in our hands around our health and food while connecting us to our deep roots on the earth. My guest today also got a fire in her soul early on in life that shaped her work and helped her to become the leading food activist she is today. Leah Penniman is a black Creole farmer, author, mother, and food justice activist who's been tending the soil and organizing for an anti-racist food system for over 20 years. She currently serves as founding co-executive director of Soul Fire Farm in Grafton, New York, a people of color-led project that works toward food and land justice. Leah's work and Soul Fire Farm have received numerous accolades and recognitions, including from the Soros Racial Justice Fellowship, the Fulbright Program, and others. In 2019, Leah was awarded the James Beard Foundation Leadership Award for facilitating food sovereignty programs. She's the author of Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farms Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land, and I couldn't be more happy to welcome you and Leah to this episode of Natural MD Radio. Leah, welcome. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me today. I'm really excited to connect with you. I'm really excited too. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure. All right. I want to just jump right in. You got involved with food activism at 16, which is really fascinating to me because I got involved with midwifery, food, herbal medicine, all of that stuff when I was 15. There's something about that early entry into almost like our our destiny. I don't know how else to put it. That's so powerful. And I'm so curious how your food and activism journey began. What brought you to that? Well, it is a powerful time adolescence. I remember feeling just so insecure um, as one of the few children of color in my school districts uh, with the home life that I had and the challenges therein, I wasn't honestly sure that I was worth the air that I took up. You know, I just really, really struggled with meaning and belonging. And there was something so profound about that very first time of hoeing a row and seeing it clean, of pulling a carrot from the ground and watching it go all the way from the earth to uh, the, the shelter for people without homes where we would serve that food, that changed my logic. There was something about if I can do this thing, which is undeniably good, which is caring for the earth, caring for the community, then logic would have it that it's possible that I'm also good. 
And that was, that was a pivotal moment for me. And there was no going back. I mean, after that first summer working at the food project in 96, I went on to uh, get jobs at other farms across the Northeast, including Many Hands Organic Farm, Farm School and um, sorry, Many Hands Organic Farm, Farm School, Massachusetts, uh, and then eventually the urban farms in Worcester before, you know, starting Soul Fire years later. Now, I read a little bit about your bio, of course, naturally, as we do with people we're fascinated by and also preparing an interview for. And your mom was a, a minister. Is that correct? Yes. Reverend Dr. Adele Smith Penniman was among the first Black women to be ordained in the Unitarian Universalist congregation and, uh, yeah, has been a, a pastor and a community spiritual activist all my life. That's so powerful. And was it her work that brought you into um, contact with the food project that you first started with, or did something bring you, you know, take your footsteps to that door of that first organization? Was there something already sprouting in you about food or was it just a community service project you took on that brought you there and it was kismet? I think it was, I love that kismet. Uh, I think it was a flyer at her church actually. So there was a connection there, but you know, teens who don't come from privilege, we need to get jobs and work. So that wasn't a question. It was just what job would take me. And I think the reason that I stopped and did a double take on that flyer was because, you know, even before that, my relationship with nature was really profound. Um, and this came from, again, the the isolation and the worry of being the only brown family in town and and the bullying and peer exclusion that resulted from that. So my siblings and I spent all our time in the forest. I mean, my sister and I thought that we had invented the religion of nature reverence, you know, only to find out 20 years later that we were remembering our ancestors away. But, you know, there wasn't a question for me that whatever I was going to do um, for a job, if I had an option, would be in service of the earth. So that was that was the yearning um, that made me pluck the little number off and confront my fears to go to this really rigorous group interview process that they had, which was hard for us introverted young people to make it through. There's just a, a, like so many roads I feel like we could go down with our conversation from bullying and being um, this unique family in your community to so many different roads. Um, so I want to honor all of those and all of those aspects of you. Um, when you said the word remembering, uh, I had this actual visual when I was listening to you of, you know, how like our body parts are called our members. And I had this visual of, as you said, that putting the body back together in some interesting way. And that is profound. <laughs> I am going to meditate on that. Well, yeah. it's a conversation that we often have about the deeper spiritual nature of our work. And we, we talk a lot about rememberers. We talk about the seeds that were braided into our ancestral grandmother's hair before they were forced to board transatlantic slave ships. And with those seeds, the memories of right relationship in, with the earth, with community, and, and what does it mean to remember the gifts of those seeds, right? To pluck them out of our metaphorical hair and, and plant them and tend them and, and then braid them into our children's hair. Mm-hmm. And, and to connect remembering with actually putting the body back together 
like making ourselves whole again, that is just profound. I'm going to be meditating on that. Thank you. I want to hear more about that <laughs> when you when you come out of your meditation. It's going to be an ongoing conversation about that. I've, I profoundly remember my first nature experiences. I grew up in a housing project in New York, so it was an incredibly urban environment. But my mom's parents lived in a little tract home out on Long Island, which I thought was a palace compared to my apartment in the city. And then my grandfather... Um, his mother, they would go to what was called the country. He grew up in Harlem. My grandmother grew up in the Lower East Side. And they would go to the country, which was like the Catskills upstate New York for Jewish families. That's how, that, what they did in the summers. And my grandmother actually, my great-grandmother was a, a vegetable cart peddler in the city. And a couple of her um, nieces and nephews stayed up in the Catskills. So my first um, experience with Somebody giving me a plant that I could then plant in the ground was my great cousin, my grandfather's first cousin, who gave me um, some spearmint. And you know those plants, I don't even know what the botanical name is, but they look like little silver dollars. They look like little pieces of mother of pearl. They're an ornamental. And he wrapped them in tissue paper for me, you know, so the roots stayed wet. And I brought them back and I planted them in my grandparents' yard. And I mean, I was like four years old. And that connection to the earth still that that was that seed for me is so interesting do you remember like it sounds like being in nature was such an intrinsic part of your child do you remember like a moment of that this is my path or this is important to me like a more specific moment you know retrospective is powerful but Mm -hmm. in the past couple years when I've been thinking about the origin story of being connected to farming, I realized I actually needed to go back further than being a teen and recall the times when I would garden with my grandmother, uh, Brownlee McCullough, uh, just outside of Boston. And she's, you know, she's a daughter of the Great Migration, one of the six million Black people who left the rural South uh, for the promise of the urban North. And hopefully, you know, relative freedom from racial discrimination and economic adversity. And, uh, but she didn't leave behind her affinity for the earth. And so she kept a little strawberry patch in the backyard and she kept a crab apple tree. And I remember very vividly going out with her and harvesting those fruits and then coming inside and milling them and making them into jam. Uh, there's a beautiful photograph my sister just pulled out of the two of us holding a big bag of each of strawberries that we had picked from, you know, grandma mm-hmm. Mew's strawberry patch. So that is the moment. That is the moment. My grandmother's remembering passed to me. I love that. I have a, my great grandmother, she used to collect the Concord grapes that were growing along the grapevines in my grandmother's neighborhood. Cause she would live up North in the summer, spring and summer. And then she and her th- two sisters would go down to Miami for the winter. And so my nanny would um, have these, get these gather conquer grapes and she'd press them to make juice. And I just remember like she'd save every jar from everything, like everything that they ate. And so there were all these jars lined up uh, and I still love jars. I love vessels. I love jars. It's so funny. These little touch points from our, our young years. So, okay. So you're like, you have a pretty <clears throat> food rich and plant-connected upbringing. And then fast forward, you're a young woman. 
I'm guessing in your early 20s and living in a food desert in Albany, and then you're also on WIC postpartum. Can you talk about what that was like uh, for you at that time and how that also influenced your work now? Sure. So, yes, as a young mother, um, my partner, Jonah, and I were living in the south end of Albany. And, you know, my mentor, Karen Washington, has so beautifully taught me that it's important not to think of that neighborhood as a food desert, as the government would describe it, where the zip code correlates to high rates of poverty and also to a scarcity of grocery stores, you know, farmers markets, community gardens, but instead to call it apartheid because it really is a human created and not a natural system of segregation Um, and because it's human created it also means that we can change it but my experience living there was you know I I honestly thought that I had left hunger behind in my childhood you know sometimes we would uh, struggle to make ends meet and with our college degrees and our real eagerness around getting fresh food for our children it was a surprise and hard to recognize that this was nearly impossible. I mean, the closest place to get fresh vegetables was a, a CSA or community supported agriculture over two miles away. And without a bus line going there without a car, that was a, a trip on foot and it was very expensive. So needless to say, most of our neighbors just didn't have access. And when they found out that we knew how to farm, we started getting this loving, half-joking peer pressure to start a farm for the people. And that's where the idea of Soul Fire Farm originally came from, was how could we grow food and bring it right to this neighborhood, uh, to these you know beloved neighbors who we've lived with for years and who need access. So for those of you who are listening who aren't familiar with something that Leah mentioned, she mentioned zip code. And um, statistically, in the US and actually around the world, um, your zip code is the single most um, significant um, determinant of your health, your longevity, your medical status, your access to food, your access to healthcare. Um, Leah, this term food apartheid, um, actually it gave me chills when you said it. Um, It's so profound and so accurate. And you talk about changing access. I, I actually had a patient many years ago who was um, is a Latina woman who uh, is a um, food expert and um, food food activist. She's Harvard trained. She's a doctorate from Harvard, and she did a, an inner city research project looking at um, people who only had access to food through what is the equivalent in a lot of neighborhoods of kind of a gas station convenience store, right? Like that's where you get all your groceries and. Um, also teaching people how to shop more healthily, just making simple shifts in what they purchased. And the uh, outcomes were really, really dramatic. What what um, what kind of experiences have you seen around the outcomes of teaching people who live in um, food apartheid environments? Um, have you seen receptivity about reframing understanding around food and what to eat? Yeah, well, something that was really powerful for us is before we set out to create any type of program, we did a lot of listening in our community about what were the barriers to accessing 
ancestral foods. So these are foods that our great grandparents could recognize the fruits and vegetables, the whole grains, the um, tubers, spices, and attitude and aptitude were not factors. The factors that were preventing people from getting these foods were money and transportation. It's too expensive and it's not uh, locally available. So when we created Solidarity Shares, and you know, I want to bring in my team here as much as we are talking about my own story, there are many of us. So you know, I want to shout out Brooke and Larissa and Justin and the other farmers for for helping build this program. But what it did was actually provide right to people's doorsteps these foods, like from our farm to you, at whatever price you can afford. And that is what it took. It didn't take convincing, it didn't take um, education, like we have the knowledge in our communities. And it's really, um, it's really about removing those barriers to accessing the food. What is what are some of the underlying factors that lead to only 2% of landowners being black and 98% being white and the racist systems that are perpetuating still in our culture? Absolutely. Yeah, and I I want to just amplify what you said. I think a lot of people are confused when we talk about racism in the food system because we don't always think about food as being related to social justice or racial justice issues. But it is true that um, even after the end of chattel slavery at the Emancipation Proclamation, you know, there was a loophole in the 13th Amendment that allowed people who have been convicted of a crime to be forced to work for no money. Um, to be enslaved. And that was used to justify a, a new batch of laws called the Black Codes that made it illegal for the first time to loiter, which means standing around, to be a vagrant, which means not having a job, specifically a year-long farming contract, and then to throw people into prison and lease them back to the plantation, to the mines, and to the railroads. And this was so prevalent um, in the late 1800s that it actually made up three quarters of the state budget of Alabama, right? And then we had other systems in place like sharecropping, which is a debt peonage system that is a sort of pseudo-slavery, followed by uh, guest worker programs like Bracero and H2A, which again, really rely on the exploitation of workers. And, and there was resistance to this. I mean, black farmers, despite not getting any reparations, not getting 40 acres and a mule that was promised, did purchase you know, 16 million acres of land, which was 14% of the nation's farms by 1910. And the reason why almost all of that is gone is really three prongs. Um, number one, uh, you know, black land and business ownership was seen as a threat to white supremacy in the South. So there was violent backlash, lynchings, you know, murder, uh, burning people's house down, kicking people off their land. Uh, secondarily, uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which is responsible for providing loans and crop assistance to farmers, would give that to white folks and not to black folks, especially if they registered to vote or tried to join the NAACP. And so that disproportionate access to subsidies really harmed farmers. And then the third, um, which is, is happening right now, is this really tricky legal situation where if you don't leave a will, you have what's called air property, H-E-I-R. And it is very vulnerable to developers, especially retirement companies these days, forcing one of the heirs to sell their parcel and then taking over the whole property. So there's, there's a number of factors at play, but the end game is that, um, you know, nearly 98% of the rural land in this country is controlled by white people, which is 
just an atrocity given the beautiful diversity of this nation that we not only have stolen land from indigenous people, but have not figured out how to share the land um, among those who, who live and breathe and, and work here. And my understanding too, well, I saw this, you know, I mentioned having spent time at the Lakota reservation. My husband at that time was working for a seed saver organization that was doing an article on a project that was happening there. It was actually a Mohawk man named Tom Cook, who was married to um, a woman in the Lakota community. Um, She was down in Pine Ridge and the land there, I mean, already it's a reservation. We can go all off on that as a whole other conversation, but just to say like, it's already a reservation, but then on the res land, the best land was being leased to white cattle ranchers. So the folks that had land, which was, you know, this is the bad lands. It's not even that, that, um, like arable is not farmable. Um, they were trying to take back the land by growing organic food. And it came back to what you were saying about access. There was one grocery store on the res, which was like dirt floors, hardly anything on the shelves and the kind of food in there was like spam and white bread, nothing nutritious. And to get to a grocery store in the city was 15 miles away, which meant you had to have a car and money for gas. And so it was this like, I think, you know, for me, that was, that was like 30 years ago that I was there. I think for me, um, it's always shocking and it shouldn't be. And maybe it's just a reflection of my own privilege that it is shocking. It probably is, but that we think, that certain systems have ended, but they actually haven't. They're just, they have a different veneer over them. So it looks acceptable. The other thing with land is that even um, in communities where black and brown folks have access to land, sometimes that's the land where toxic chemical dumping is happening. Right. So it's, um, yeah, just all these you know thoughts are flooding me as you're as you're sharing this um, this information, and and what you were saying too about um, you know all these laws that basically filled up the prisons. I mean that's still happening too. I remember seeing Ava DuVernay's documentary Thirteenth um, and just being really surprised at how. I think it was like Victoria's Secret, right? Like boxes were being packed by prisoners. Like it's still it's still. I think there's something like 40,000 corporations that are benefiting from prison labor. And last year was the peak of uh, incarcerated people doing labor on farms, you know, since the early 1900s because of the draconian immigration policies and the impact on farm labor. Um, And that's a whole complex thing we need to unpack because why is it that our nation actually relies on the oppression of indigenous people across our so-called borders to feed ourselves. We need to talk about that too, but um, you know, incarcerated, mostly black men out on the plantation, 2019, 2020, it's not over. It's still Mm -hmm. happening. So you've dedicated your life and your team has dedicated their life to making a change and a huge change. And I'm, I'm so pleased to see how much um, recognition you're getting for that, that Soul Fire Farm. When I say you, I also mean collectively Soul Fire Farm is getting for that. When you guys first started out, um, I'm assuming you did it on a shoestring budget and just built a little by little. How did that go for you? How did you do that? I'm so glad you asked because I think sometimes folks assume it all plopped down magically. But, you know, we, it was 2006 when we made that decision and came out here um, to the hills of Mohican territory, Grafton, New York. And we didn't have 
you know, much money saved and don't have independent wealth. So this land is quite marginal. I mean, it's the side of a mountain and everyone said there's no way you can farm up there. But we felt a deep connection to this land, this calling to this land and and decided sort of stubbornly and maybe naively to try to make it work. Um, so we we purchased land out of pocket. We took out loans from friends and family and banks to build the house. Uh, both my partner and I were working full time jobs and putting half of our salaries toward building up this project, which was all volunteer and was a family farm until 2016. Um, so it's only been four years that we've actually had a nonprofit organization and funding to uh, pay folks uh, living wage and so forth. Um, so, so we're super young. And in the, in the past couple of years, we've been really blessed to be able to put together a combination of, you know, selling products from the farm, doing our educational programs for earned income, you know, writing grants, receiving donations from our beloved community and, and putting that together so that this entire team can be supported to do the sacred work of, of land liberation and human liberation. So it started out you and your partner. And did you have did you have a child at that time already? We did. So when we were living in the south end of Albany during that time when we talk about being on WIC and trying mm-hmm. to uh, get fresh food, Nishima was two and Emmett was two weeks uh, when we when we moved to Albany, New York. And now Nishima is living in Harlem. She's almost 18 and Emmett's in his room doing math. He is almost 16. So my husband, Tracy, um, he actually was an organic farmer when I met him. And then he actually worked for the Extension Service and the Atlanta Botanical Gardens when we lived in Atlanta. He worked in the south southwest Atlanta, helping folks put in their gardens, like when they didn't have a tiller and stuff like that. And then he turned the Atlanta or uh, Botanical Gardens vegetable garden into an organic show garden for, for teaching. We don't farm anymore, but we we like... I would say we intensively garden. And I know for me, like this year, for example, we had a really wonky year. Like for whatever reason, our yellow squash didn't come on until August. Our tomatoes were really late. You know, there's a lot going on with global climate change that's affecting agriculture. And I know, like, I know from experience, I know from spending time on organic farms, it's not like, um, you just go to work in the morning and you know you have your job and you know you get a paycheck at the end of the week. It's like you have to get out there early in the morning and cover the vegetables before the first frost. And if and if stuff doesn't go, you don't have it. So how do mm-hmm. how do you guys manage the sort of vagaries of farming, if you I think that's the right word, um, and providing food to other people um, given the the unpredictability and and like how did you do that at first right you it's not like you just put seeds in the ground and then <laughs> next year you have this amazing garden it takes time it does take time and you know my partner and I and you know the additional team members uh like Larissa and Brooke and Naima and Justin come with farming experience and so oftentimes people will ask me like how do you get started how do you get land and I think the first thing is to learn how to farm and there's lots of ways to do that whether it's a job an apprenticeship a course but um our strategy was to build soil before we planted any seeds, you know, because we had really eroded marginal degraded land, we needed to use animal grazing to deposit manure and remove pests and, and invasives. Then we went to adding a lot of organic matter like 
mulch and compost and paper layers just building up, 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 up. Uh, then we planted cover crops. So it was a few years of soil building. And then another strategy, and this is especially important in a time of climate chaos where we've had hurricanes, we've had you know, seasons where the snow doesn't stop till May and then starts again in September. That was this year. Did you get a couple of crazy hailstorms this year? We had two. In we did. Yes. We did. But planting a diversity of crops and a diversity of varieties within those crops really helps with resiliency, as does these Afro-Indigenous practices like low and no-till, you know, semi-permanent raised beds, heavy mulches, contour planting. So we're trying to use the wisdom from our lineages to take good care of the earth and then you know, some crops will fail, but there will be other things that will succeed that we're able to use to feed the community. So uh, are you also using heirloom seeds when possible and seed saving? We do. Yeah. And shout out to our friends, uh, Chris and Owen at True Love Seeds for teaching us seed keeping as well as Mama Ira Wallace. I didn't know anything about seed keeping except for garlic. We have saved our garlic for many years, uh, but they were generous enough to come up to the farm and teach us and our community members this incredible skill and such an important skill in terms of food sovereignty. So now we actually have some Soulfire Farm seeds available through the True Love catalog. Um, this really cool tomato called Plat de Aiti, which is a Haitian tomato. And, and that's important to me because of my Haitian lineage. Scotch bonnet peppers, um, bee balm number six, which is a Mohican herb, um, and a few others. So we've been bit by bit learning and expanding our seed keeping. And we're in the same zone, so I'm going to be putting those in my garden next. Yay! <laughs> very excited. Um, and then in terms of indigenous farming practices, you know, you know my work as an herbalist. Um, there's not really one lineage of herbal medicine. You know, women's herbal tradition has been so disrupted over centuries, and there's so many different women's herbal traditions. Um, and I'm imagining that indigenous farming may be a little bit like that like how do you how do you trace back black farming roots how do you maybe first nations may be a little more intact in some places um like in the Haudenosaunee nations but how are you piecing these together and then um as like a secondary question to that um how do you do so respectfully without appropriating other traditions and like weaving them all into a whole Exactly. So that's so important um, because we would not want to appropriate appropriate um, anyone else's culture. So when we talk about Afro-Indigenous, we're particularly talking about the pre-colonial and anti-colonial practices of Black people. So um, in, there are Indigenous people all around the world, um, including in West and Central Africa. And some of my ancestors, Indigenous ancestors, are Dahomey, are Yoruba, are Igbo, and how we learn about those practices is twofold or threefold really. One is I've been very, very blessed to have the opportunity to live um, and work in Ghana, West Africa in my early adulthood and to go back and visit several times, most recently right before the pandemic. I've been to Haiti um, many times to study and work with the farmers and learn uh, from the farmers. We additionally are blessed that we have elders like Mama Ira Wallace in our community who remember some of the African diasporic legacy and what these varieties are and how we plant them. And then, frankly, there's research in the literature. I mean, the premise that I started Farming While Black with was that it's probably true 
that Black people have contributed more to farming than just being enslaved, right? So that was the premise. And then started to dig, you know, what are the origins of compost? What are the origins of polycultures and raised beds? And I'm not saying that these are the purview exclusively of African diasporic people, but there has been significant contributions in almost every technology related to organic farming by Black people. And so we read about those, we study them, we implement them, we amplify them. Um, As far as like, just one more thing on the Haudenosaunee practices. So as far as Turtle Island Indigenous practices, we only use those with permission. So for example, there's a Warren Miller, who's a wonderful farmer at the Mohican Nation uh, in Bowler, Wisconsin, has taught us how to specifically plant the Mohican maize. And so we copy those instructions um, that we were given, but we don't, uh, you know, just grab anybody's traditional ways, if that makes sense. It does. And it's a really beautiful thing. And it's really moving and meaningful for me to hear that and to have you share that, because I find that one of the things with the age of the internet is that there seems to be this license that people are taking to just sort of copy, appropriate, and use other people's content and legacy and um, to hear, I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised, but to hear that you're honoring to that level is so powerful. You've done an extensive amount of traveling. Um, I had the honor and privilege of working in Haiti for a month. And oh my gosh, that, that could be a whole other conversation. That was wow. such a powerful. Where in Haiti? I was in the north. I was in Milo, um, which is about 30 miles from Cap Haitian, Ocap. And um, I was working in a, it was a hospital that's funded by a actually a Christian organization or Catholic organization in the U S but it's a Haitian run Haitian doctor and nurse um, operated hospital. And uh, yeah, the generosity and uh, kindness I experienced there. And uh, that's a whole other thing on how women birth. And yes, that's a, a, a powerful place to, to be and to be from. What are some of the, if you could sort of share is there something that especially stands out to you as like a pearl of wisdom or an experience you had in Ghana or Haiti? I think you've been to Mexico as well. That really just stands out for you as like an abiding story or pearl of wisdom that kind of guides you day to day. Well, probably the most powerful moment in that regard would be um, in my studies with the queen mothers of Manya Krobo Ghana, who are uh, just these amazing spiritual activists guardians of community ethics. Um, they they like to low-key make fun of us as Americans. They ask me lots of questions each day about how we were. But one of these days they said, you know, is it true, Leah, that a farmer in the U.S. will put a seed in the ground and they won't pray or dance or sing or even say thank you to the ground and then expect the seed to grow? And when I sort of shamefully admitted that was the case, they said, that's why you're all sick. You know, you are all sick because you treat the earth like a commodity and not a relative. Oh my gosh, that so, makes yes. me cry. <laughs> wow. Had you, at that point, when you traveled um, and learned that, did you have Soul Fire Farm already? No. Okay, so. No. But that was a seed. That was another seed that was planted that I think has grown at Soul Fire Farm. One of the things I wanted to actually ask you is about that. So when you talk about Soul Fire Farm, 
you specifically and respectfully identify that you are occupying Mohican land. And you really honor that in your organization and in your practices. Can you talk about how at Soulfire Farm you go about honoring the people who worked the land before? And you know, do you dance? Do you pray? Do you have ritual when you go into the season or or harvest? We do, you know. And I, my feeling is that only members of the Mohican Nation could say whether we are honoring well or not, and we do our best to live up to that friendship and that covenant. Um, but some of what that looks like is first building an authentic relationship, you know, which has taken time. You know, there's members of the community, the Mohican community, who receive food in our solidarity share. Um, we've been active on some of the pipeline resistance and development resistance that they have going on that would destroy sacred sites. Uh, been involved in the seed exchange and most recently granted what's called a cultural respect easement, which is giving land rights uh, to a portion of the property back to the Mohican nation. So, so, and we'll keep listening and doing our best and messing up and saying, we're sorry. And, you know, um, so there's that. And then, as far as the way that we engage ritually, you know, we at Soulfire, we're a very diverse community. We have different traditions. And for me and my family and some of the people here, um, we're connected to African traditional religion like Ifa, uh, Orisha worship, uh, Vodun. So even just a few days ago, we had our fall harvest festival. It's a Haitian festival called Manje Yam, which involves paying reverence and homage to the yams and the other crops that come out of the land. Uh, we take a mystical journey on a boat of banana leaves to go visit our ancestors and receive guidance for the year to come. There's drumming, there's singing. So yes, we have these rituals that punctuate the year. Um, we have a practice of asking permission from the land before we make big changes uh, using a divination tool. and and it's it's honestly so woven into the day to day. Sometimes it's hard to list and name the things. It's just it's how we try to move, thing. you know. Yeah. Are your kids involved, and have they been involved? <laughs> and how are they, um, you know, in terms of like, for, just for example, with my kids growing up, and we homeschooled our kids, but um, our lifestyle was very different than a lot of other families on how we observed um, food practices and health practices and so forth and sometimes our kids they got it but sometimes it, it they felt really different too and I'm just wondering as a mom how was all of that integrating the kids into this experience so I mean they're just so wonderful I think that one of the hidden blessings beneath all the trauma and suffering of these past few months has been you know I was really experiencing all this anticipatory grief around my oldest flying the nest and like, where was the time that we would get to be together as a family on the land because of the summer internships and busyness and programs. And then when the world shut down, it meant that we who live here needed to run the farm. Nobody could come help, right? <laughs> and the kids jumped into high gear and implemented the skills they've learned over their lifetime. I mean, they can build a house, they can you know, do roofing, they can plant and harvest crops, uh, edit reports. And and here we were together, you know, side by side on the land in the snow and the rain and the sun, like doing that sacred earthwork. And I don't know what they're going to decide to do with their lives, so to speak. And but I do feel really, really blessed to have been able to fortify them with these these skills, like these incredible life-giving 
necessary skills of building and food and being in community. Leah, how do you see the work you're doing? Literally see it. How is it um, transforming racial, racial injustice in the food system? What are your visions for how Soul Fire Farm impacts the big picture? Something that's really amazing is that we are one in a number of, at this point of black and brown led uh, food, food and farming organizations that are making waves. So we stand shoulder to shoulder with the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, the Heal Food, food Alliance, the Black Farmer Fund, Black Farmers United New York, SAFON, um, Federation of Southern Cooperatives. So there's all these wonderful organizations and initiatives and together you know, we've been able to make some really big change. Like, for example, a piece of legislation just got introduced in the Senate called the Justice for Black Farmers Act that would give back, you know, thousands of acres of land that has been taken from our community that would establish farmer training programs, right? It would uh, investigate civil rights complaints in the in the USDA and do so much more. Um, we've also, you know, built a finance vehicle. We've built a land trust that uh, is working to to hold land in the way that it will be protected. So I feel hopeful because the people who are most impacted by the harms are really the experts. And those are the folks who are taking the lead and um, I think starting to be listened to for the first time in a long time. What is the Black Indigenous Farmers Reparations Map? So this is an, an initiative that we helped to start that is being carried on by the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust. And it does not let the government or society as a whole off the hook for a reparations plan that's comprehensive, but in the meantime, welcomes individuals of good heart and with resources to consider making gifts in the spirit of reparations to black and brown led farm and food projects. So you can find it on the Nefolk website or the Soul Fire Farm website, uh, click on it, find a project near you, and there'll be a listing of what it is that that project is needing and how you can contribute. Leah, what are some, and we'll put all the links below um, the, the podcast so folks can really dive in and, and make some contributions and, and learn more. What are the things that you feel like we can all do today to be part of the movement to end racism and injustice in the food system in addition to connecting with these organizations? It's such a good question. I mean, my daughter Nishima talks about the food system as everything it takes to get sunshine onto your plate. So there's a lot of points of intervention around sharing the land, um, standing up for uh, labor rights, making sure that folks have access to food. And we did put together an action guide on the Soul Fire Farm website that has hundreds of things you can do. So definitely check that out because there's something for everyone. Um, but I would say advocating for the Fairness for Farm Workers Act is really important. Um, it is just a shame, a, a travesty that we still have these draconian uh, labor laws that don't protect farm workers. Like farm workers don't have a right to a day off or overtime pay or workers' comp, all of these really, really important basic protection. So, so that's something as well as, as I mentioned, the Justice for Black Farmers Act advocating for these policy changes that will really get at the root of some of the structural problems. I think the, I think the blood and suffering that goes into our food is so unseen and so unknown. And um, the work you're doing to bring light to the most fundamental, one of the most fundamental things we need for survival, food 
is so powerful and I can't thank you enough for the the work you're doing and the work your team is doing, the work Soul Fire Farm is doing. It's inspiring. Thank you. I want to end by um, asking you about Farming While Black because it's a book that's designed to create sustainable, equitable, profitable, and dignified relationships, I'm reading this, with food historically disenfranchised communities and the land. Can you tell me what led you to write the book and how it's influenced your life, how it's changed your life and the activism movement? What's the role of the book in the in the bigger picture now? Well, I mean, the personal reason is that, you know, Toni Morrison said, if there's a book you need to read that hasn't been written, go write it. So I was looking for this book so that I could use it for my students on the farm and it didn't exist. Right. So so it is in some ways a compendium of the curriculum that we've been building over the years. That is the, the how to of of a small farm, but is also, you know, weaving in the beautiful and noble and dignified history of black agrarianism uh, with some anecdotes for Soul Fire Farm. And it's been received really well. I mean, people talk about it as not just a manual that they can open up and see how far apart to space their carrots or what the recipe for sauerkraut might be, um, but also a reminder of our collective strength. And, you know, there was a really sweet moment uh, just a couple of weeks ago where this mama sent a picture of her three-year-old child who had a hose slung over her shoulder. And when the mom said, you know, put that down, you're going to hurt someone. She said, oh, no, I'm trying to hold this hole like Mama Leah did in the Farming Wall Black you know, <laughs> picture. <laughs> so what struck me about that um, is that when I was young, I didn't have land-based black and brown folks around me to like see, to look up to, to imagine myself in, you know, in a role like that. So my hope is that between the work of all of these wonderful organizations and the increasing visibility of black and brown farmers that we can also inspire the next generation to think about what is their relationship to land that they're yearning for. Leah, thank you so much. And it just turned out that today is Giving Tuesday that we're doing this interview. So I also just want to share with you that um, I don't know if you know this, but we created a, a kind of a giveaway fund in a way, a give back fund where we don't take personal money from supplements, but folks are always asking me, where do I get supplements that I can use that are safe and reliable? So we created Dharma Moms and we would be honored um, to give um, uh, the proceeds for this week, which is usually about $2,500 to Soul Fire Farm, if you would. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yes, we would be honored and we can put it towards our fellowship to support um, the next generation of farmers. Well, so thank you. And thank you so much for truly all the work you're doing. I learned so much from you. I learned so much today and um, I'd love to have you back again and share more. And we're going to share lots of links. Um, Soul Fire Farm, you guys, has wonderful Skillshare videos, um, resources, book recommendations, activism recommendations on their website. Leah, can you give the um, the best web address for everyone to go to? Absolutely. Yeah, you can check us out at www.soulfirefarm.org. And you can find Farming While Black, the link for purchasing that as well. Um, Leah, I wish all of you um, at Soul Fire Farm a beautiful holiday season, healthy winter, and I will be excited to connect with you more and ex- and connect with you through your seeds through True Love Catalog as well. Thank you so much. Have a blessed day. 
You too. Thank you everyone for listening. I know this was probably really inspiring, a lot to take in. Please share it with other folks who can also um, spread the word about Soul Fire Farm and support this important work that they're doing and um, learn about the other resources that Leah talked with us about. And I'll see you on the next episode of Natural MD Radio. you enjoyed this episode of natural md radio if you did please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog and while you're there be sure to sign up for my newsletter it's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally that's avivaram.com take care and see you next time